Welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education. I'm your host, Jill Anderson. Today we're speaking with Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, a pediatrician and author of The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. Welcome, Nadine. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you today. Tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing and about childhood adversity and its toxic, long-lasting effects on health. Yeah, my research is on adverse childhood experiences and uh, something called uh, toxic stress, which is the overactivity of the stress response that leads to long-term health problems. And for me, this work really started over a decade ago when I opened a clinic in a very underserved neighborhood of San Francisco and observed uh, very high rates of uh, symptoms in my patients, ranging from uh, difficulty with learning and attention all the way to asthma and autoimmune disease. And uh, ultimately, when I dove into the research, uh, what it turns out is that the experiences that children have really shape their health in ways that I certainly didn't learn about when I was in medical school or residency. And uh, my focus has been taking this science out of the research journals and putting them into practice. Can you talk a little bit about that last part? Well. To understand how to put it into practice, one of the first things that we have to do is understand the mechanism, right? I think previously, uh, folks were seeing the symptoms and trying to, to treat the symptoms. So in many ways, uh, difficulty with learning, difficulty with behavior, asthma, all of these things were in and of themselves conditions, but they were also symptoms of a deeper underlying problem, which was a dysregulated stress response that was the result of exposure to high doses of adversity. And putting that science into practice meant, uh, number one, doing early detection. Because all of the research tells us that the most important opportunity we have is with early intervention. But in order to do that, we have to understand that this is the problem in the first place. And then when we tailor our solutions, they need to be focused on the actual problem, which is an overactive stress response. So we look in my center, the Center for Youth Wellness in San Francisco, we explicitly target our interventions at uh, reducing stress hormones, reducing inflammation, and enhancing neuroplasticity. And these, are, these directly combat the effects of toxic stress. And just to talk a little bit about some of these adversities, these are intense childhood adversities. Why are we saying adversity versus trauma or, or a different word? So when we talk about uh, adverse childhood experiences, that term actually refers to 10 exposures that were identified in the landmark study conducted by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente, in which they asked over 17 and a half thousand folks, uh, adults actually, about their histories of 10 categories of adversity in childhood. And these include physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, or growing up in a household where a parent was mentally ill, 
substance dependent, incarcerated, where there was parental separation or divorce, or domestic violence. So I think for a lot of us, if it's, uh, you know, five out of those 10 adversities are, you know, very, very clear traumas, but for some of the other ones like uh, divorce or, uh, you know, many people had a parent who was depressed or, and, and they didn't necessarily see it as a trauma, it was just, you know, how their family was, right? right? And so, um, uh, and what they found in this landmark study, uh, two things, one, that these adverse childhood experiences or ACEs are incredibly common, and two, that there was a dose-response relationship between these childhood adversities and negative health outcomes. So as you just were mentioning, trauma is something that's common that the majority of children encounter at, at some point, uh, regardless of socioeconomic status. So one thing I'm thinking about is this growing opiate epidemic facing America. As a pediatrician, knowing what you know about children being exposed to opiate addictions and high adversity and the link to high-risk behavior, how does that make you feel about the future of, of these kids? Well, when I think about the future of these kids, I feel, I'll say, cautiously hopeful. And uh, this is the reason why. This science arms us with the tools to be able to respond differently. But in order to be able to do that, we need the public will. One of the things that I love about this science is an understanding that it allows us to debunk the myth before many people thought, oh, those people, uh, you know, they, they choose to engage in high-risk behaviors, and certainly there is a, some amount of choice involved, but an individual who has four or more adverse childhood experiences is 10 times as likely to be an IV drug user. And part of the reason, as, as someone who has zero adverse childhood experiences, and part of the reason for that has to do with the effect of childhood adversity on the pleasure center of the brain, the ventral tegmental area. And uh, when kids are exposed to high doses of adversity, what we see is changes in the structure and function of this part of the brain. So individuals get less pleasure from activities that should be pleasurable, and they need higher and higher doses to get the same effect. And so there's a dramatically increased risk of addiction. And understanding that part of that risk is due to disrupted neurobiology helps us move away from the blame game and think about how do we help these young people heal. So on that note, educators, and that's primarily who we're focused on here, are struggling to respond to this this epidemic. Uh, we have so many parents addicted, and they're seeing more kids in foster care and rising numbers of behavioral issues in kids as young as preschool. So I wonder, what do you see as the role for educators uh, who are, in many ways, the front lines to some of these adversities that kids are facing, like the opiate epidemic? I believe that educators have an incredibly powerful role in our societal response to this crisis. 
listen, as a doctor, I see a kid once a year for their physical, but educators spend all day with, with kids and young people. And um, what we see is that when educators are armed with the science, like um, the work that uh, Turnaround for Children is doing in New York, bringing the science of toxic stress into the classroom, training every person in the educational environment to understand um, what does it look like when a child is showing symptoms of toxic stress, and, and using that science to say, okay, so if a child has an overactive stress response, we have to deal with the behaviors, but we also perhaps can give that child just 15 to 20 minutes to cool down, to give those stress hormones a chance to, to, to de-escalate before we move forward, to re-engage the prefrontal cortex, right? Because we know it goes offline when the fight or flight response is activated. Or for example, the work that the Center for Wellness and Achievement in Education is doing in San Francisco with bringing mindfulness practices into the educational environment both for students and for educators, reducing everyone's stress response. And um, in, in that case, when they brought that to junior high and high schools in San Francisco, they saw reduced suspensions, reduced expulsions, increased GPA, higher standardized test scores, and a reduction in the African-American achievement gap. So I imagine in a lot of these cases, where you have a kid presenting some symptoms, maybe you know it, it becomes a discipline issue or it becomes some other issue than what might really be going on uh, in that child's life. That's right. Many uh, young people who are exhibiting symptoms of toxic stress right now are being met with school discipline that is harsh and putative. Instead of being supportive Instead of there being an understanding of their biology, of the, these behaviors being a symptom of an underlying biological problem and getting the appropriate support. And the one thing I want to add is, you know, especially for educators in, in vulnerable communities, if you had uh, a classroom full of 30 kids and 15 of them had epilepsy, it would be unfair to ask that teacher to stand at the front of that classroom and teach while these kids have all these neurons firing. And yet we have um, educators in environments where perhaps you know half or perhaps more of the students have some element of an overactive stress response happening, right? And then we're asking these teachers to manage these behaviors um, because we as a society believe that it's part of teachers' job to manage behavioral issues, but the, the point that I want to make here is that this is a biological issue, and we need to provide teachers with the appropriate supports, and that means that we need to work across systems, the educational community, with the healthcare community, with all of our systems in society. I'm going to get back to that in a minute because I, I do want to talk to you about that, but I want to go back to recognizing toxic stress. What are some of the things teachers, educators listening should be looking for in their students that might be a sign of something else going on? So some of the symptoms are um, related to, you know, 
what is the underlying biology of toxic stress? So when you have an overactive stress response, we see an overactive amygdala. This is the brain's alarm center, right? We see decreased activation of the prefrontal cortex, which is the seat of executive functioning, and overactivity of the part of the brain that activates stress within the brain. And so we see poor impulse control. Uh, we may see uh, uh, difficulty with attention. Uh, kids may be hypervigilant, or they may be just detached or very difficult to reach, right? It's, um, it's an individual combination be between that child's um, uh, exposure and their biology. But some kids may not show any behavioral symptoms at all. Asthma is the number one health reason for missed school days. Kids with four or more adverse childhood experiences are twice as likely to have asthma as kids with zero ACEs. Can you talk a little bit more about a need for public health and education to collaborate more closely, which I think you were just talking about a few minutes ago? So, you know, it's funny. I talk to doctors and they say, hey, what are we supposed to do? I see this kid once a year. We don't have necessarily all the resources in the doctor's office. And I talk to educators and they say, what are we supposed to do? This is so difficult, you know, and this is a health problem. How do we address this? And um, if each of us is thinking that we by ourselves have to solve the whole problem, we're never going to get there. But if we recognize that the overall problem is exposure to childhood adversity and an overactive stress response, and we each take our little piece. We're talking about routine screening for adverse childhood experiences in the doctor's office so that we can do early detection and hopefully intervene earlier. We're talking about trauma-informed school systems and practices so that um, for example, they may have mindfulness in the classroom that is part of the solution. We're talking about community resources so that a, a mom can get access to, um, you know, a domestic violence shelter, right? Like, if we all take our little piece, then I believe as a society, we'll be able to make a transformative difference for kids. And just to understand this science, when you do some of these things, can you change and alter their health for the long term if you implement some of these responses? Yes, you absolutely can. And while we know that the research about the high level of neuroplasticity in little kids tells us that early detection and early intervention is key, there is no point at which it is too late to intervene. Of course, it becomes more difficult and we need more resources the later we intervene. Um, but some of the interventions in terms of mental health care, uh, mindfulness, safe, stable, nurturing relationships and environments, regular exercise. Don't get rid of recess, y'all. <laughs> like kids need regular exercise to help to reduce their stress hormones and enhance endorphins, right? So thinking about how we set up our systems and practices as part of a holistic solution I think is critically important. One thing I just wanted to go back to is the issue of uh, some of these ACEs, or most of them actually, I would guess that adults and children feel some sort of sense of hiding these things. And so I, is how do you work your way around that when you have families 
of people, kids, parents, not most aren't going to come out and say what the reality is at home. So how do you work around that as an educator, as a, as a physician? Well, this is a big part of the reason why I wrote The Deepest Well, because the, the shame and the blame is actually part of the cycle that reinforces adverse childhood experiences. And one of the big ways that I approach this in my clinical practice is really to recognize that um, most often, ACEs are handed down intergenerationally. If you're looking at a child and they have high ACEs, most often, if you get that parent's history of what they experienced as a child, they themselves have high ACEs, and they may also have an overactive stress response. And so, you know, if you keep going back, right, there's, it, it's very easy to see, um, to move away from blaming a person, to uh, move towards framing it as, how do we help to provide you with the resources? I've met a lot of parents whose kids have really high ACEs, but I've never met a parent who didn't love their child. And if we help to arm parents with the understanding and the tools and supports to figure out how to react differently when their own stress response is activated, and then how to support their children and be a buffer, because we know the antidote to toxic stress is safe, stable, nurturing relationships and environments, right? Then um, I think the focus is just moving away from the blame and trying to get resources and tools. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I could probably talk to you all day, but for people interested, they should check out your book, The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. Thanks so much, Nadine, for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. This is the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks for listening.